Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So as you know, uh, today we're looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. The reason that we had uh, someone read it, uh, before I had Andy read it before, is um, it's a long one. There's a lot of verses in there, a lot of time uh, that we could spend on a lot of different parts of it. Um, and also, <clears throat> this is true for me for sure, and it might be true of you as well. Sometimes I got to go back over things like a few times. Uh, like I'll read a passage, I don't know if you ever do this in the Bible or even just other books that you might read where you read something and you're like, what did that say? Okay, I gotta go back and redo it again. And so if if we really want to embrace what scripture is saying today and apply it to our lives, sometimes we gotta go over it a few times. And so that's, that's what we're gonna do. Um, we've had it completely read, but now we're gonna go back through it again uh, but we're gonna kind of highlight specifically a few parts. I'm gonna paraphrase some other parts so that we can kind of keep uh, moving forward there. But if you wanna follow along, you're totally welcome to. In fact, we'd encourage that. So uh, you can open up to uh, verses 21 to 41 if you want to. Now, right out the gate, um, I just wanna acknowledge that this seems, we know, and listen to the whole thing, we know that all of scripture is important and useful, but can we also just recognize this seems like a fairly unnecessary story to add into the book of Acts, right? Not a ton happened. There's a problem, there's a riot, calms down, and then everyone goes home. Like we don't see like mass revival break out. We don't see like some very, very obvious like lesson laid out before us. We just see this problem, then a solution, and then we're on to the next thing. And at least at first glance, it can seem like this, this is a fairly unnecessary story, but as we know in all of scripture, all of it is there for a reason and has something specific to say to those at the time who are reading it. And the beautiful thing about scripture is it speaks through time and culture and space to speak directly to us today through the power of the Holy Spirit. So I, I absolutely believe that there are some important things that God wants to communicate to us today through his word, even when we run into it and we're like, okay, I don't really see how that applies to like what I'm going through right now. And I think you'll kind of catch what, what I'm uh, getting at here in a few minutes as we get into it. Uh, so going back through the story and highlighting a, a few specific parts, where we find ourselves today in the book of Acts is this is the very end of Paul's time in Ephesus. So he's been there almost, most people agree, like three years at this point. Um, so it's not like he just rolled in for like a week-long mission trip and then pieced out of there. No, he's been there for like a number of years and he's been uh, doing a lot of pretty impressive stuff. And you may, you may remember like last week, um, there was two examples of some kind of wild things that were going on in Ephesus. Like people were coming and getting pieces of clothing from Paul and taking them to sick people and they were being healed. That's crazy. Uh, they the name of the powerful name of Jesus like made the rounds of all the people who were involved in like witchcraft and sorcery and stuff like that. They all came together and like publicly confessed and like burned all their magic books and stuff like that. Like big things going down in the city of Ephesus. And what we're gonna find is as people gave their life over to Jesus and as they continued to faithfully follow him, the entire landscape of that city began to change. 
And as we all are aware, sometimes we don't really like things to change. And what we find is we find a group of people here who really, really are not game for the change that the gospel is bringing into a society and bringing into a group of people. So at the very beginning of the passage, we see that, that um, Paul is making some travel plans. He's heading back to Macedonia, doing kind of this long swing back to Jerusalem um, to touch base there. And then, and then his dream of dreams is to like get to Rome one day. And that's what he wants to do. And we see him send a few people ahead of him into Macedonia, and he's going to catch up with them later. In other parts of scripture, he's re- he refers to this. Uh, he talks about how there was like a big open door opportunity in Ephesus that he didn't want to leave quite yet. And, and there was a lot of enemies along the way, and he was trying to make good decisions there. And so he stays for a little while longer before leaving. He says some goodbyes. He wraps up his, some loose ends. And then apparently deals with a citywide protest riot. So another day in the life of Paul the Apostle basically is what we find here. And here's what happened, um, and I do want to read this part specifically. Here's what happened to kind of kick off this really big problem uh, that, that Paul and the church had to deal with. In verse 23, here's what it says. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which is like the understatement of the century, right? No little disturbance. Never heard a riot described that way. Uh, but no little disturbance is how Luke describes it. And when he says the way, he's talking about followers of Jesus, the way of Jesus. It's referenced as the way a number of times in scripture. And it says, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So Demetrius is doing his best life. He's making these silver shrines. He's selling them. We're going to get into that and what that meant here in just a second. And he decides to get together all the people like him who kind of all relied on this similar means of income. And right out the gate, at least this is how I'm seeing this like laying out, right out the gate, he's really honest about what is bothering him and progressively gets less and less honest about his motivations for being upset as we walk through the speech. I think you'll see what I mean. He says right out the gate, full honesty, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. This is really what it comes down to. This is how we make our money. This is how we provide for our families. This is how we accumulate wealth and power to us. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not God's big problem for them because their whole livelihood is making gods with their hands, right? And so he's like, this guy, Paul, is causing problems for us. He's been causing problems for everybody in our line of work. All the concern here is directly connected to their bottom dollar. But then we see as he continues to talk, he like adds this layer that makes his uh, next action seem like a little more noble or a little more caring for the people around him. Look, look at what he says here in verse 27. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. So he's like, it's not just about us losing money. Listen to this. Also, that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, heaven forbid, right? And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He adds this like kind of spiritualizing, pleading to their emotions thing onto the end of his argument. What started 
honestly, saying this is about money, ended with, and we wouldn't want our city to suffer, and we wouldn't want the great goddess of Artemis to be looked down upon. It might, it might really cause a lot of problems for us and our people. To understand why he would appeal to that, we need to understand a little bit of context. Artemis was a Greek god, a false god, a statue. Um, and Ephesus, there's a lot you could learn about her, and there's a lot more than we have time for today. But Ephesus was kind of the center of worship for her. She was worshiped throughout a lot of the world at that time, um, but it was a big, big deal to worship Artemis in Ephesus. People would come from like a long, long way away. They would pilgrimage to Ephesus to worship her there in her temple. And this temple was massive. It was one of the, the seven wonders of the world at the time. Uh, some suggest that I found when I was doing research about this, it was the biggest building in existence at the time. I mean, there was a lot, a lot being devoted to the worship of Artemis. And her worship and everything surrounding it, it was a massive cash cow. People were making tons and tons of money. The city of Ephesus was making tons and tons of money um, because of the worship of Artemis. There would be all these vendors selling shrines like Demetrius uh, and offerings and all kinds of other junk to basically these sucker tourists who are coming in here to do their worship thing. And uh, you, know, you, might, you might have like a picture of, of somebody like a vendor or something like that, like at a state fair or something like that. I, <clears throat> this may be a little mean to say, but I kind of imagine these people, Demetrius and this crew, kind of is the people who sell the Disney ears at Disneyland. Um, I, uh, this is one of my hot takes that people get mad at me about all the time. I don't think Disneyland's very cool. I think it's kind of boring. Um, and part of the reason I don't like it very much is because everything is so massively overcharged for just garbage stuff. Like those, those ears are the perfect example to me of like, you do not need this. There's never another moment in your life where you're gonna use this, at least you shouldn't. And, but you should definitely pay us $80 for a headband and two little felt circles on the top of it. it, it you're not gonna be able to experience Disneyland unless you experience it like this. And we have you captive and we know that you're buying into the magic and so we know that you're gonna spend all your money on it. Like that is exactly like how I picture all these people selling all this junk for people to use when they come to worship Artemis. Maybe that's unfair, but I think, I think it's pretty accurate. And so this was an opportunistic job at best, um, a fairly manipulative and even dishonest job at worst. And what we find to be true at this point in time is that the more the gospel spread over those three years and the more it changed the lives of the people of Ephesus, more and more people surrendering their life to Jesus and then conforming their life to the likeness of Jesus, walking in the power of the spirit, aligning what they do, how they spend their money, everything that they do in life around the person of Jesus, the more that was happening, the less people were coming to the temple, the less people were coming to worship a statue, which also meant the less people were buying this garbage. And so this kind of instigated this crisis meeting on, on behalf of these craftsmen. So they call this big meeting and essentially, I'm gonna paraphrase some here, he gets everybody really, really riled up. Scripture goes on to tell us that this crew of craftsmen also were upset about their profits getting cut. And so they stir up this big crowd. There was confusion in the entire city. They grab a whole bunch of people and they head out to this place scripture set calls uh, the theater. 
And so this isn't like a movie theater. This is like a big amphitheater outdoors. There's pictures of it on the internet. The ruins of it still exist today. It's this massive amphitheater outside where they would hold like citywide events or debates or whatever it is that they needed the whole city to be in on. And this is not like a small place. Uh, the, the stuff that I found estimated about 25,000 people could fit in there. And I don't know if this was packed to the brim this time around with this specific situation, uh, but this was a large space where a lot of people came together. So they all march out of the city and they march to this place called the theater and they grab a whole bunch of, or a couple of Paul's friends and take them along with them. And I think it's really important here to have a good, clear picture of just how sketchy a situation this was. Because sometimes, because of the distance, we can read scripture and think, oh, it wasn't like that big of a deal. Like, this isn't a good thing, but this wasn't like 10 people dragging Paul out of the city and like beating him up and sending him along his way, which happened a lot to Paul. But that's not what happened here. This was potentially thousands of people all gathering together, super angry at the church, at the followers of Jesus. This is a dicey situation. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians. He's saying he had to deal with like wild animals in Ephesus. And most people agree he's not talking about wolves. Like he's talking about people acting crazy, acting like animals here. And so I don't know if you've ever had an experience of like being in a really, really big crowd, but even the most extrovert among us, if you're in a big enough crowd, it's a little anxiety inducing, right? I mean, I'm sure we've had that experience. I, I, in my life, I think I've only ever been a part of one mob one time that I would genuinely call a mob. And it was not an angry mob, just to clarify. We weren't like protesting, it wasn't bad. But my wife and I and my parents were in New York City over Halloween one time. And I know for some people in the room, it's like, that sounds like a living nightmare. And maybe some other people are like, that sounds exciting. We thought it would be exciting, and it was. Um, and so we wanted to take in like all the craziness that was New York City on Halloween. And so we went to this neighborhood and they had this like big kind of like flash mob type like parade thing. It was like a grassroots like parade thing. And the neighborhood was like, everybody come out, bring your homemade costumes and stuff. And we'll kind of like march down the street. And that's the first time, I'm not a highly anxious person. That was the first time I was like, I'm, I'm feeling like pretty nervous right now. <laughs> Cause I'm in this giant crowd of people and I can't see the front of it. And I look back and I can't see the back of it. We're like building to building on the street. There was really no way to get out of it. And I remember thinking, man, this could go bad really easily. Like if somebody freaked out or got spooked or something, started running, like if someone got mad or someone got into a fight, like this could turn into a really, really ugly thing. And so, and, and everyone was good there. Everyone was happy to be there. Can you imagine being in a crowd of potentially thousands of people and they're all super angry, super confused, super riled up? This was a bad, bad situation. So yes, Luke says it correctly, this was no small thing, no small disturbance. And can you imagine what could have been going through the minds of this baby church at the time? They've only been followers of Jesus for a little while. Like how frightening would that be? Like, is this it for us? Like, are they gonna drag us up there and kill us? Like, is the church just done in Ephesus at this point? I wonder if these were things going through the minds of these people as they watched thousands head out to this place dragging along a few of Paul's companions with him. As we progress through the story, we find that Paul wants to get in there, which of course he does. Um, no, no big surprise there. 
Um, whether he's going to defend the people who are there or like advocate for the church. I also like to believe in my own head that probably he was like thousands of people all gathered in one place. I have a story for you. I'd love to tell you about it. I mean, that really seems to track with who he is. But what we find is it kind of out of character for Paul. We find some believers come alongside him and say, don't do this. It's gonna go bad. It's gonna get worse. Don't do it. And then we have another group of people who probably weren't believers, but were some super powerful like high officials in the area come to him and say, Paul, we really don't think that this is a good idea, which that's a whole nother little rabbit hole that I think is really cool, but we don't have time to go down it today. That Paul lived his life in such a way that these people who probably weren't believers and had all the power in the world should have been threatened by him actually were advocating for him. I think that's really interesting. Maybe one day we'll, we'll get into that. But he, to his credit, listens to them and decides, okay, I'm not gonna go in there. What we find, um, which I mean, and it probably was a good call because this crowd was really, really riled up. Um, scripture tells us it was full of confusion. People were yelling one thing, then other people were yelling other things. People were taking the opportunity to say their piece or advocate for their thing. Scripture says that, this is hilarious almost, most people didn't even know why they were there. They were just like, oh, big crowd, I'm gonna go out there too. Oh, we're yelling? Yeah, I'll yell too. They didn't even know why they were there. They were just part of the moment. They got swept up in it. At one moment during this big assembly, as it continues to get ramped up, uh, we find that the Jewish unbelievers, so these are people who are Jewish but are not followers of Jesus, they make this kind of ploy to try to distance themselves from Paul and from his companions. We read about it like, Alexander, the guy that, that uh, Andy referenced, wasn't a follower of Jesus. He was an unbelieving Jew. And so when they pushed Alexander up to the front, what they were doing is trying to get him to say, listen, Ephesus, we're not with this guy. Like, don't be mad at us. Don't be mad at the Jews. These people are a different thing. Be mad at them. Don't be mad at us. What we find is that this crowd is so hyped, they can't even hear what Alexander is saying, and it royally backfires on him. In verse 34, this is how they respond to this guy trying to create distance between the, between the Jews and the church. He says, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, that's all they saw. They just saw that he was a Jew. It says, for about two hours, they cried with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. We read over stuff in the Bible and we act like it's normal. Have you ever chanted for two hours? That's nuts. We can't even make it through three songs in a 30-minute message most of the time, you know? Two hours screaming their guts out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As it kind of wraps up, two hours goes by, and somebody gets up to put a stop to this. And it would make all the narrative sense in the world for it to be someone who matters, right? But it's not Paul. It's not this Alexander guy. It's not someone from the church. It's not Demetrius, it's the town clerk. It's a bureaucrat. A bureaucrat gets up and says about the most bureaucratic thing that you can say to calm everybody down. I'm paraphrasing here, you should look at it, it's really good, it's really good to, to, to know what it says, but let me just paraphrase it here. He gets up and says, you guys, everything will be okay. You don't need to be worried. We are too big to fail. Everybody knows that Ephesus is the place. 
Everyone knows that we worship Artemis. This tiny little side thing is not gonna cause us problems. You do not need to worry. Nothing has to change. He goes on to say, Demetrius, crew, we all know the rules. If you have some real thing to bring against these guys, do it, do it in court. But this isn't the place. And not for nothing, if Rome finds out that we're rioting, it's gonna be problems for everybody. So we all need to chill and you all need to go home. Obvious paraphrase, right? And they do. They realize, oh, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess he's right. I guess these people probably won't cause that much damage to us. We will get in bigger trouble if we keep doing what we're doing. And we can't really get rid of them through the means that we're trying to get rid of them through right now. And that's the end. People disperse. They all go back. Thousands, potentially. They all go back to their houses. Paul touches base with the church, with the believers. And in the next verses that we're gonna read at the beginning of the morning next week, he heads out. So again, I ask, why is this here? <laughs> like, why, why in the providence of God and the Holy Spirit, like, why is this included here? What are we meant to see here? And, and of course, there's lots of things that we, could, that we could land on. Yes, it shows how the world can be hostile to the gospel, and we need to be ready for that, yes. Yes, it shows God's provision during a very, very scary and dicey time. Yes, it shows how the gospel can have a huge effect on a culture. And all those things are true and important to recognize. But I also noticed something else here when I spent time with it over the last few weeks. And that's what I want to explore today for just a few moments. Um, and this is something, I, I'm just gonna point out observations. I really do feel like it's not like a preacher's job to do all the work for everyone. It's all of our jobs to hear what God is saying and then actually do the work of applying it to our own lives, which is what I've done here, which is what I need to do when I'm sitting out there and is what all of us need to do as we engage with God's word. We all have the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus in us and he is highlighting things for us that we need to pay attention to. So I'm gonna point out some observations and you can decide Man, is that true of me? So here's what I, I feel like the Holy Spirit just hadn't allowed me to, to get past here. Most of the time, when I read the book of Acts, when we've been going through the book of Acts, initially, I've been identifying with the believers that we see in the book of Acts. And that makes all the sense in the world, right? Like, I'm a believer, they're a believer. We're genuinely brothers and sisters, even though they lived in a different time and a different place. Like, that is how the church works. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. But I'll be honest, as I read this and I sat with this, I began to think that maybe at times I have more in common with this crowd than I like to believe. As I look at the different ways that this crowd responds to the ongoing change that the gospel brings into a person and into a place, as much as I hate to say it, I respond the same way sometimes. And I think it would be a missed opportunity this morning to not look here and to ask ourselves some questions. How do I respond when the gospel invades my life? When the gospel threatens the things that I have a very tight grip of control over? I think that we can acknowledge, can we please acknowledge that we have flesh and we have spirit in us? and the flesh and the spirit are warring against each other. And at times we function in the spirit and at times we function in the flesh. And we need to look at that and not pretend like that's not a tension that we live in. 
We can't so quickly just demonize these people and say, oh, I would never respond that way. When in reality, yes, they're throwing a riot, but how often when God comes to me and says, this needs to change or this needs to be let go of or this needs to be surrendered to me and it's actually better for you, my response is my own little mini riot inside my own heart. I think it's way more often than I'd like to believe. But if we can look at it with clear eyes, I think we have a much better chance of not falling in to those same patterns. One thing I just wanna make a, a clarification on, I feel like I didn't do a very good job of last service. So hopefully Holy Spirit did his thing. I'm sure he did. Um, as I'm talking about our surrender, as I'm talking about us letting go of control, it can come across a little bit like Jesus is like this bully where he's like, bring me the thing that matters to you most. I'm gonna break it in front of you. Ha ha ha. That's, that's not at all like what I'm trying to get at. What I am trying to get at is the best thing that we can make on our own is worthless compared to what Jesus has for us. It's an exchange of something broken, something unfulfilled for something so much better. So when we talk about surrender, when we talk about the things that we value the most here in the next few minutes, I just want us to all I don't know, just have like that perspective. It's not that necessarily they're wrong things. And it's not that Jesus wants to take everything that we like. It's that he has something so much better for us. And we're settling. We're settling for something mediocre or worse when we hold so tightly to it. Hopefully that makes sense. I think it will more as we walk through it. So third time's the charm, okay? Going through this story. We're gonna walk through it one more time. And I wanna point out just a few of the responses of the crowd, and then we can ask ourselves, when God comes to me and says, it's time to change, are these the same responses that I might have? I know that there are quite a few for me. The first thing is this, is the timing of this very visceral response by these craftsmen. This wasn't in week one of Paul being in Ephesus. This was three years of Paul being in Ephesus. The craftsmen, these people, even the city itself was very tolerant of what the gospel was doing in their city until this moment. What's special about this moment? It's because this is the moment that the gospel started to threaten the thing that Demetrius and his crew valued the most. I was floored when, I, when, I, when that clicked for me. How tolerant they were of a gospel until it was time to threaten the thing that they valued the most. And I'm like, man, is that not so true of my life? I am so tolerant of what Jesus wants to do in other people's lives for sure, but I'm so tolerant of what Jesus wants to do in my life until we get to that point, until we get to that line where he's like, okay, the thing that you have at the top of your priority list, sitting on the throne of your heart, whatever metaphor you wanna use for it, that's the thing that needs to be uprooted and you need to put me there. That's where inside here, very often I say, no way, I'm not gonna allow it because I have control and I'm comfortable with it and I want it. So no, you can't have that. I think this is something we see just in our regular life all the time. I see it in, in, in my health, like as a very, very clear picture of we will tolerate something as long as it doesn't as long as it doesn't come for the thing that we value the most. I'm 37 years old, and I know that's not super old, but 
as time goes on, I have more and more weird little like pains and tweaks and stuff like that. I'll wake up and be like, why do my feet hurt? There's no reason whatsoever why my feet hurt. You know, stuff like that as it continues. Um, and I don't know if you do this. I don't think many of us do this. Every time I have a little twinge or a little pain, I don't like run o over to the doctor and be like, what's wrong with me? Like I would wait to the last possible moment to go take care of the issue because I'm willing to tolerate all those minor things. Let me give you another example. When I was a teenager, my youth group would take trips, uh, ski trips. It's kind of like a retreat. We'd go to Colorado and we'd ski and then we'd do the uh, like sessions and stuff at night. And I went there one time and I was learning how to snowboard. Um, I was like pretty arrogant as a teenager. Um, I didn't, I had a really specific way I wanted people to view me and I did not want people to view any kind of weakness in me. All right. It was really important to me. And uh, I was learning how to snowboard, but I told everyone I knew exactly how to snowboard. Okay. So I get on the ski lift and I go up to the top of the hill and on the first run, the very first run, I eat it super hard and break my wrist. First run. I went the entire next three, three or four, I forget how many it was, three or four days never telling a soul. And it wasn't like hanging sideways, right? But it was broken. I just pounded back the Advil and I kept it to myself and I was like, no one gets to know because I was willing to tolerate my pain so that my image in front of these people wasn't tarnished. Because that that's what was most important to me. I go home, and the first thing that I have to do when I get home is the swimming unit in my PE class. And we're learning how to do laps. So I'm taking my broken wrist and continuously pounding it against the water as I'm learning how to do laps and stuff like that at the aquatic center. It eventually came to the point where I, I was like, this is too bad. I have too much pain. Mom, my wrist really hurts. Went to the doctor, got an x-ray. Oh, yep, that's because it's broken. But up until that point, up until I could not get away from it, I was willing to tolerate a ton of pain so that my reputation didn't take a hit, or at least in my mind, didn't take a hit. Because that's what I valued most. And for these guys, what they valued most was money and power. For you, it might be something different. But there may be something that we value more than Jesus, made great in our lives, that daily walking alongside him and abiding with him. Maybe it's power, maybe it's control, maybe it's autonomy, maybe it's comfort, maybe it's image, maybe it's purpose or fulfillment. I don't know what it is for you, but I bet if we think hard enough, there might be something trying to claw its way to the place of greatest value in our life. And when Jesus comes, when the gospel invades and says it's time to give that up, what will our response be? Will we be willing in humility to say, yeah, you know best, or will we throw a little riot inside our own hearts? I wanna keep moving here. The next thing uh, that we see in the way that this crowd response, uh, responds when the gospel comes and says, okay, this needs to change in your life. Uh, everything is changing in this world. They jump to spiritualize and justify what it is that they're doing. I think it's really fascinating how he goes from the first statement of saying, hey, this is gonna mess up our, our cash flow. But by the end, he's like, well, we wouldn't wanna like mess everything up for everyone in our city. And you know, we really care a lot about like the reputation of Artemis and all this stuff. They, they quickly jumped to justify what they were doing and even made it seem like that was the noble or right thing to do. I look at myself, 
how easy is it for us to justify what we want to do? How easy? I justify what I want to do all the time. And so do you. So do all of us. But are we, are we so willing to do that even when it's something that Jesus is calling us into? Maybe we only uh, react in this way or throw these many riots when things get really real for us. Maybe we only throw these riots when we feel like we need to justify what uh, it is that we want to do. The, the next response that we see as we continue to look at how this riot rolls out is we see that many, many, many of them were just swept up in this moment and had, this is fascinating to me, had no idea why they were there. Had no clue why they were so upset, why they were so riled up, or what it is that they were like rallying around. And it just goes to show us like, it is so easy to rally around anything. You get enough people yelling it, with enough passion behind it, true or false, it is really easy to rally around absolutely nothing. Let me give you an example. My daughter uh, at her elementary school did this speed stacking competition at the end of the year. I don't know, it, you stack cups and then unstack cups. I don't know why they decided to do that, but they had this assembly thing and they all learned how to do it and it was fun or whatever. And partway through, we're sitting at the back because we went to watch her and stuff like that. We're sitting in the back. And I, I noticed this growing chant kind of like come through the crowd of students. And I, and I kind of perk up and I, I like listen. I'm like, what in the world is happening? And I hear every kid in the room chanting, USA, 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 for like 10 minutes. They're just chanting, USA. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? This is speed stacking. I don't think it's an Olympic sport that we can get behind. This isn't Bayer, like the mascot isn't a patriot. It's a wildcat. Why are these kids chanting USA? I do not understand. And so I asked Abby afterwards. I was like, Abby, what was the deal with that? She was like, oh, it was my, my friend right next to me started that. I was like, do you do that all the time? Like, is this a thing you do at elementary school now? She's like, no, my friend started that because Lauren was up on the stage. He didn't know her name, but she had a sweatshirt that said USA on the front. It's like a Gap sweatshirt or something. So he started chanting USA and then everybody else started chanting it along with him. So if we can just get a clear picture, there was one kid in that room who knew why he was chanting USA. One, the hundreds of others had no sweet clue why they were chanting what they were chanting. Same was true in here. And let's be real, that can happen in here as well. How easy can it be for us to rally around a complaint or a preference or an issue, or even a value, a relationship, a person? How easy is it for us to rally around something that we have no business rallying around? Church, there is one person that we rally around. One, it's the person of Jesus. That's it, period. We cannot afford, when Jesus invades, and when he says, hey, there's a new level of change coming your way, we cannot afford to find something else that's easier for us to stomach and say, I'm gonna rally around this. We cannot afford to do it. I can't even tell you how many conversations I had of people who are upset about something, and when it comes down to it, they don't even know what they're upset about. Something feels bad or, or there's some issue that doesn't end up being the actual issue. It is so easy for us to have the wool pulled over our eyes and rally around something that actually doesn't matter. 
We must be people as the church who are only willing to give that kind of passion and energy and time to one person, and that's Jesus, period. But that's intentional. We have to work at that. That does not always come naturally. The next response that we see here that I just want to touch on really, really briefly is in the midst of this riot, these people went after the totally wrong set of people. Alexander was brought by the Jews, put up in front of them, and they totally destroyed the guy. But that's not who they were mad at. It just happened to be who was right in front of them. And in our own little personal riots that we throw inside of ourselves, who are the first people that we lash out to? Probably the people who are right in front of us. As the church, who's right in front of us? Each other. How easy is it for us? Because we are frustrated about the places that God is taking us for us to lash out at each other because that's just where we are. Man, church, if you're mad at God because of what he's doing in your life, be mad at God. He can handle it. I'm very confident that he can handle it. We cannot take it out on each other. If we're supposed to be this picture, if, if our picture of how we love God is, it, it hinges on how we love each other, we cannot afford to lash out at each other because what we're actually frustrated about is God has taken us places we're not quite ready to go and asking us to surrender things we're not quite ready to let go. We cannot take it out on each other. That's riot behavior. That's not church behavior. I gotta keep going. The last thing, maybe the most depressing to me, the last response we see of this riot before it just fizzles out is the only reason they were willing to calm down was because someone stood up and promised that things wouldn't ever have to change. That bureaucrat stands up there and he's like, we're too big to fail, nothing will happen, don't worry about it, go back to the way things were. Let's be real. Sometimes that's exactly what we wanna hear God say to us. That whatever the road forward is, even if it's difficult, um, we would rather him say, hey, you can stay right where you are rather than follow me to the place where you actually are meant to be. So as we look at these different responses, I think sometimes, I'll just say this for me, you can figure out if it's you. Sometimes I respond like this when the gospel really, really starts to bring change into my life, which that's a progression, right? Yesterday, we this is how it should go. Yesterday, we were less close to Jesus than we are today. And tomorrow, we should be closer to Jesus than we are today. That's like the trajectory that we all want to be walking. And as our life continues to change, we will learn that there are new things that need to be surrendered over to him. New areas of control or comfort or convenience or autonomy or whatever it is that we need to be willing to lay at his feet and say, I'm exchanging it for something much, much better that you're giving to me. But because we still are fleshly people, sometimes we throw a little riot. We go into overdrive trying to find good justification that things can stay the way that they are. We find anyone who might agree with us and we yell it out together. We lash out at anyone that we can find. It's usually each other. And maybe the worst, the only way we calm down is when someone comes by and tells us, don't worry, you don't need to change. Everything can stay the way that it is. I wonder if we looked critically at our lives, if we'd see these responses pop up more than we'd like to believe. But here's the deal. Here's the really, really good news. We are not a mob. We are the church. 
which means because we have the spirit in us, we do not have to respond like the riotous mob. We can respond like the church. The church who does not get a lot of face time in this particular story, but the church that changed everything so significantly that the whole city was in an uproar because of how they were living their lives. We have to pay attention that we do not respond like the mob. We need to pursue responding like a humble, surrendered church who wasn't vying for power, who wasn't trying to change everything, but by just being faithful to Jesus ended up changing absolutely everything. Artemis worship is no more. It's gone. Worship of the one true king, Jesus, is doing just fine. So let's not riot for something that's temporary that eventually will go away. Let's make sure to rally around the one person, Jesus Christ, who will stand, who will continue, and the only one worth giving our time and attention to. So we take communion uh, every single week, mostly, here at Crosspoint. Um, and the cool thing about today, I guess, is I told you at the beginning of this message, like I think it would be in our best interest to examine ourselves today, examine our responses to see if they look a lot more like a riotous mob or a lot more like the church. And when the church would get together throughout history and partake in the Lord's Supper, that was an element of it, just to examine themselves, to see like how aligned with Jesus they actually were. And so we have that opportunity to do that today. So when Jesus, uh, the very first time this happened with all of his friends, the night he was gonna be betrayed, he took out the bread and he broke it and he said, hey, my body is gonna be broken just like this so that you can be whole and that you can have relationship with God. And because Jesus is the one that we follow, he's the one that sets the example, our lives also will be broken. And, and, and that can mean a lot of different things. Our control can be broken, our tendencies can be broken, our sin can be broken and made whole in relationship with Jesus. So as we take the bread here this morning, let's remember to follow his example, to, to break the things that we are holding so tightly toward so that uh, we can align ourselves more and more with the person of Jesus. Let's take the bread together. He passed around the cup and he said, just like this wine is being poured out, my blood will be poured out um, so that again, you could be made right with God. And again, as our ultimate example, we are to be a people who go out and pour out our lives. And as we do that, the entire world will be changed. Let's remember that as we remember him and what he's done here this morning by taking the cup. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're really, really thankful for how you change us. And I say that also scared because change is hard and it doesn't always feel good. And when it comes for the things that we really, really value, it can feel like too much. Jesus, would you just remind us that there is nothing too much for you? That a life that looks like yours that is radically committed to you is never a waste and it is completely worthwhile. Jesus, would you just identify the places in our lives, the responses in our lives where we respond like a riotous mob and would you just not let us get past it until we surrender to you? Lord, would you make us a church, 
a real church that looks like you, talks like you, goes where you go, and does the things that you've asked us to do. Lord, we're so grateful how you've done that and are doing that, and Lord, we want more of that. So God, would we just be wholehearted here this morning? As we leave this place, would we consider uh, what you've said to us even more? And Lord, would we have the courage to do the things that you've put on our hearts to do as steps of obedience here this morning? We love you, your awesome name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.